even as a child, he felt hopeless. I speak of Vincent van Gogh, if you're an American, if you're British, I'm speaking of Vincent van Gogh. If you're Dutch, I'm speaking of Vincent van Gogh. He was born into an upper middle class family. He became known as an eccentric. Today, he is considered one of the world's greatest painters. And yet, reading through the letters that he wrote to his closest friend, his brother Theo, one sees a complex figure with a complex relationship to the world, to God, even to himself. He was the son of a liberal Protestant pastor, and yet Van Gogh wrote that his youth was, quote, austere, cold, and sterile. Eventually, young Vincent drifted in a more evangelical direction. Eventually, he became a missionary, and he served as a pastor to an impoverished community of coal miners in the south of Belgium. But Van Gogh saw the wealth and the hypocrisy of the church in his age. Christians would wear extravagant clothing and rich jewelry on Sunday mornings while the people he served struggled to live and survive with positions of extreme poverty, constant danger, and yet the Dutch church leaders would reprimand Vincent van Gogh repeatedly as a missionary for identifying too closely with these poor miners that he pastored. To show support for his impoverished congregation, Vincent actually uh, gave up his his own very comfortable home in a local shop. He handed it over to a homeless family so that they could have a place to live. And he built a hut in the woods where he slept on a straw mattress. Yet his squalid living conditions didn't endear him to a worldly and soulless church. The authorities dismissed him as a missionary for, quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. And so Vincent was depleted in his savings and in his soul. And once he was completely broke, he had to leave the people in this mining community, leave the people that he loved. And he took a job with his brother Theo, who ran a shop, an art gallery. He would live in poverty the rest of his years. He never made a dime from any of his artwork. And in his soul, Vincent van Gogh became disillusioned with the institutional church You see it in his paintings. We have one uh, up here. Next slide. In his paintings, you know, you see the church is always a dark place. There is never light within it. The windows are always an inky, inky black or, or a purple or a dark blue reflecting the complete absence of the love of God within its walls. He felt rejected by the church with its love of wealth and status. He struggled deeply with mental illness. Vincent suffered from psychotic episodes. He suffered from delusions. And though he was worried about his own mental stability, he often neglected his physical health as well. He didn't eat properly. He drank like a fish. One evening, after an altercation with his friend Gauguin, Vincent found himself assaulted by voices in his mind, and he severed part of his own ear, or by some eyewitness accounts, his entire ear. He sent it down the street to the house of a prostitute that he had once sought comfort in his isolation. He spent time in psychiatric hospitals, including a period at St. Remy. We've got a self-portrait here. Some have suggested he had schizophrenia, though we can't know. What we do know for certain is that Vincent dealt with a condition that was very similar to epilepsy. The majority of his life, he was affected physically as well as mentally. He went through great periods of the darkest depression 
mothers would pull their children away from him. The, the people in his town and his neighborhood lobbied to get him removed. They called him the red-headed madman. His condition may have been made worse by his habit of sucking on his paintbrushes. The paint he used was very high in lead and probably a very high concentration of lead poisoning probably affected his brain and contributed to his drifts into mental delusion in his later years. In the eyes of the world, Vincent Van Gogh was a madman, a drunk, a reject, disgusting, and a failure. It was presumably in one of these fits of his depression, his delusion, that he shot himself in the abdomen at the age of 37. And while he didn't die immediately, he managed to make it home. He stayed there, and in the aftermath, several days later, he died from blood loss and infection with his much-loved brother Theo at his side. Can you imagine the heartache? Thank you. That's good. Can you imagine the loneliness and the sorrow? We inhabit a world filled with tears, a world of suffering that overflows with pain. What can you say in the face of that kind of suffering? The tears and the sorrows of this life, they multiply. How can a a thoughtful person find any hope in a world filled with hopelessness and despair? not going to turn to a fairy tale today to try to answer that question. We're going to turn to a book that is as drenched in blood and tears and sorrow as the world in which we live. It's a book that pulls no punches. It's a book that's as honest about the reality of depravity and despair as we are. I speak of the Christian Bible. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Everything is vanity. So writes the words the author to the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. You might translate it in modern English as meaningless, meaningless. The entire world, this life is meaningless. Is there a meaning in there? Or is it all absurd? Is there any hope that can truly deliver this life of pain? of of beauty mixed with shame, of sorrow. It goes unanswered. Tears go uncomforted. A life of shame in which we have to hide our true selves. A life filled with sickness and betrayal and death. Does it have any meaning? What can you say in the face of that kind of pain? We're looking at an unexpected text this Easter morning. It's a bloodstained text, if you will. It is from the apocalypse of St. John, known to many of you as the book of Revelation. St. John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, the one he loved. He was also the last to die. And in his old age, he received a symbolic vision of the resurrected Jesus, a a vision that came to him as he was enslaved in chains on a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos in the Aegean in the midst of persecution as the church was feeling the first big brunt of opposition from the Roman state and systemic injustice, in the midst of their humiliations, Jesus came to John in a dream and gave him this vision. What picture does he show? I'm going to read from the Apocalypse, from the book of Revelation, from chapter 1, if you want to follow along as I read. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, that's the first day of the week, I was in the spirit 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, and his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What do we see here? We see the honest backdrop of hopelessness in this life. These early Christians were undergoing terrible suffering. John himself was imprisoned. He calls himself your brother and companion in the suffering. This was the persecution. These early followers of Jesus would see horrible degradation. They'd see their worship services and private homes disrupted by guards. They'd see their leaders taken into captivity. They would see their fathers and brothers and sisters and daughters attacked and violated in shameful ways. They themselves would be beheaded. They would be burned at the stake. They would be sewn into the hides of wild animals and thrown into the arena to be attacked by lions. This was the beginning of the persecution. And in the midst of this horrible suffering, John receives this vision of Jesus. Maybe you're not being persecuted for your faith in Jesus like Christians are even now, even today, in much of the world. But I bet you could use a companion in the suffering. Because I bet you feel the effects of the fall. The Bible says the world was created to be a certain way. And that it's not that way anymore. It has fallen. It is damaged. And as a result, we've lost our connection with God. And the world itself has been fractured. And our souls and our bodies have been fractured. This world is filled with suffering. And what we see here is an honest account of that suffering. What can you say in the face of that kind of sorrow? It's all around us. It's inescapable. What can you say to the mother who looks up from the kitchen table as she hears a shot ring out and she looks to her husband and she says, he didn't didn't take the gun with him. And the husband says, we better get out there. And both of them know what they're going to find as they find slumped down in the midst of milkweed and ragweed, their son hunched over a rifle, a bullet through him. Tears don't even come. As a mother, for the last time, 
gets down on the ground and cradles her son. What can you say in the face of such sorrow? A lifetime of of doctor's offices and scans and treatments and counselors and programs, always wondering why I just can't get it together, why I'm not like other people. He had just turned 25 years old. What can you say to his mother and father? There's no Hallmark card that can answer that. There's no figurine you can buy to make someone feel better. What can you say when the doctor tells you that your husband has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease? What can you say to the slow weakening of the muscles? When you Google the disease, the first thing you see is that there is no hope and there is no cure. When all you have to look forward to is that thought that he's going to be trapped in a body that cannot move, his speech slurring, unable to chew, unable to swallow, unable to manage your own bodily functions and personal hygiene, not knowing at what point to say goodbye because there's less and less of him every time you see him. What can you say? When you come home from a business trip and there's a note on the kitchen table saying, honey, it's not about you, it's about me, and you look around and the furniture's all gone. You had thought maybe counseling could fix it, but at that point, there is no hope. That relationship that you will never have again, that person that will never again be at your side, all the places you went together will remind you of what you lost, the whole of pain and sorrow. What can you say to that? What can you say in the face of chronic pain, mental illness, the cruelty of Alzheimer's, the loss of a child? What can you say to six-year-old Jordan who has tubes sticking in and out of him and has to be bedridden 24-7 and rolled over every two hours so that he doesn't get bed sores? What can you say to the Christians in North Africa as they're paraded out onto a Libyan beach and executed because they won't deny Jesus? What can you say to a legacy of racism systemic injustice, a cycle of poverty? What can you say in the face of violence and disease and humiliation when every one of us ends up in a box or in an urn with our ashes scattered across the sea? Can you feel the hopelessness? What can you say to that? One thinks of the words posted at the entrance of Dante's hell, lay down hope, all you that go in. By me. And yet, just then, in the midst of his own great suffering, St. John the Apostle sees a crack of light breaking into the darkness. What does he see? But he sees a vision of a suffering God. That is the picture he sees here. He sees this figure, one like a son of man from the Hebrew prophet David who spoke of a godlike creature who is eternal and who will rule the world for eternity who is worshipped. One like a son of man, a God-man. He sees this picture. He says he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He these are, these are titles that ascribe to God elsewhere in the Bible. He's described as radiant like a furnace, his face blazing like the sun. This is exactly what an early Christian would have expected the resurrected Jesus to, to look like in a symbolic depiction. He's a God-man. That would not have been shocking to him. What would have been shocking is the fact that this God-man had hair white like wool. Because white like wool indicates that this is a sacrificial lamb, one who was given over, whose purpose was to be slain to appease 
the judgment of God. What would be shocking is when Jesus says, Behold, I was dead. Why would God do this? John would have expected him to look like that, but what what would have been so shocking to the early followers of Jesus, what shocked them to the core and made them so eager to follow Jesus, even to their death, was that this shining God king had submitted to abject humiliation. God had died naked, gasping for breath, under the cruel yoke of an occupying power. Why would God do that? Why a suffering God? Some of you know what it's like to be in an argument, perhaps with one spouse or significant other. In an argument, it goes like this. It's your fault. No. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You need to own that. It is not my fault. No, it is your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. It is not my fault. It is your fault. Quit getting emotional. It's your fault. Don't make this about my emotions. Quit being controlling. I am not being controlling. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. You know what this is like. Some of you have been having this argument for 37 years. And yet the only thing that can stop that kind of argument, that kind of conflict, is when one party or the other decides to say, I'm going to take the blame here. Okay. It's my fault. Let's blame me. And that's the only thing that can end the argument. That is what Jesus was doing when he died on a cross. This was God in his millennia-long conflict with humanity. Us blaming God. Why did you make this horrible world? God blaming us. I didn't make it horrible. You're the one who turned for me. You're the one who brought death. You're the one who brought destruction. It is your fault. No, God, it's your fault. And finally, what happens is the argument comes to an end when God himself says, I am going to take the blame. I'm going to swallow all of your guilt and all of your shame and all that's wrong. I'm going to bring it on myself and I am going to take the blame. That's the cross. God taking the blame for my sin. I'm the biggest sinner in the room. And that's the beauty and mystery and what is so incredibly disturbing about this picture of a suffering God. And it's the only thing that has the power to break my hard heart and crack it open so that I can fall at the feet of Jesus like John did and say, no, Lord, this should not be. It was always my fault power of the cross of Christ, of a suffering God. And that's what opens up the possibility of hope. Why? Because it it silences that most accusatory of voices that happens when we're suffering. You know what it's like when things are bad. You know what it's like when, when, when there's real pain and deep loss and insecurity and sorrow and grief and despair in the midst of your tears. You know the voices that come to you and whisper in your head. They tell you it's your fault. It's because you're sick. It's because you're disgusting. God could not love you. Or maybe God is sick. Maybe God is disgusting. Maybe it's his fault. No, it's your fault. You're horrible. God could not love you. And if God stepped in to a world of suffering, if he submitted himself to humiliation and degradation, to be despised and whipped and beaten and to die, Because he loved you. God doesn't always tell us why bad things happen. Not specifically. But there's one answer you can rule out. 
And it's that voice that speaks to you that says, God could not love you. That's the door to hope. But it doesn't actually take away the sorrow. It doesn't actually take away the pain. And it doesn't actually take away the suffering. But it cracks open that door. And yet that door comes flying off his hinges when something else happens. Everything changes when one man breaks back through the door of death. That's the message of Easter. It's this seemingly crazy assertion of the early Christians that Jesus actually died and actually rose again. Uh, You know, there's actually quite good historical attestation to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, You know, something certainly happened to take that early band of people who followed Jesus, and after Jesus was was murdered by the, the Roman state, They were dejected, they were downcast, they were despairing, they had lost their leader, and they were all scattering already. And yet something happened that turned them in to the most vigorous, powerful, determined missionary force in human history. And 11 of the 12 of them went to his death in order to hold to the belief that Jesus was dead and that he had actually risen from death. The early sources we have in the Gospels recount the events. They certainly were not fabrications. Uh, If they were fabricated, they would have written them very differently. Uh, For example, the Gospels describe the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus as being women. And for 1,900 years, Christians took flack for that because in both Roman and Jewish law, women could not be trusted as a witness to events in a court of law. The only reason they would have described women as the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus is if Jesus himself had entrusted that task to women, not men. And if that's the way it happened, they felt compelled to say it that way. But if they were making something up, it would have been different. If they were making it up, they would have made the apostles look like heroes instead of the absolute idiots that they're portrayed as in the four Gospels. Uh, You know, there's, there's reason to believe this actually happened. These early followers of Jesus were convinced and it carried for them a powerful hope and a hope that was larger than just one man's resurrection. Jesus is saying in this vision to John, He's saying that the resurrection, his resurrection, opens the door for everyone else who follows him. Jesus says it in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key of death. Jesus is speaking to you right now as he was speaking to John, and he's saying, there is a portal, there is a doorway that every single one of us has to walk through. None of us gets out of this alive, and you're going to have to walk through it, and you can't take anyone with you. When you walk through that door of death, there is no one who walks through that door who ever comes back out of it, because it is locked in such a way that you can go through, and it's a one-way journey. And yet Jesus is saying, I was dead. I walked through. And then I walked back out. And when I came back out, I brought with me the key. And if I walk that door through that door with you, if you pass through that door with me, I'm going to have the key. And I'm going to unlock the door. And you too are going to live again. I am the living one, Jesus says. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the key of death. It's what Jesus said to Mary and Martha earlier in his ministry as recorded in John's gospel. He said, I am 
the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live forever. You see, Christian hope is not a hope like Americans use the term hope. Like, I hope it's sunny later today. That's just wish projection. Christian hope is a confidence that's based on a promise validated by the character of the one who promised. In the face of suffering and death and hopelessness in this life, always and only leading to the coffin or to the ashes, always and only leading through that doorway through which we must go, Jesus is speaking into the darkness, breaking through, saying, death shall not get the last word. Death shall not stand. Life is coming, a life that is more powerful than any death any one of you will ever have to face. You know, it's it's like what I experienced with my Android phone this year. You know, I had a Note 4 that lasted me a good three and a half, four years. Um, And it got to that place where um, a phone just, uh, you know, there's that point in which the, the, the the charging port just decides it's not going to charge ever again, and you've done this. You've then gone online and bought the extra battery and put it in and, and seen how that lasts you about three days, and it won't recharge either because it's not the battery, it's the phone. And uh, I was down to about 21% on it, and, and my entire life is in this phone. This is all my apps. This is all my data. This is my Facebook. This is pictures of my cats and my family and, 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 and articles that I may or may not have written for an XSTO this week. Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff in here. And I, my life was dying. And there was no way to resuscitate it. So I went to the AT&T store in Brentwood, and I waited. It's Brentwood. And, uh, and eventually it was my turn. And by then I was down to like 17%. And I said, I need to get a new, new Android. So I got the new one out. They put this one down. They got the other one. They took it out of the box. They did some, some weird jiggery-pokery stuff to it that's magical IT people stuff. And, and then... My, my, my old phone started down, up, uploading everything to the cloud. My entire soul got uploaded to the cloud. And then they did more jiggery-pokery and waved their wand and all of that. And then, right as I was down to about 3%, everything downloaded to the Note 8, brand new and shiny, and slippery so that you have to replace it frequently. And I thought, this is the resurrection. If we can do this with a phone, who's to say that God can't do this with a soul as your body is dying to upload you to the cloud and download you again into a new and improved model? Friends, Jesus is saying, I was dead and now I'm alive and I brought back the key. And if you trust in me, I am the resurrection. If you trust in me, Yes, you're going to die, and just as certainly you are going to rise again, new and improved, humanity 2.0, without the sorrow, without the tears, without the suffering, without the sickness, and without the death, because John says later on that all of those are going to go away. In this life of sorrow and despair, it's the only hope we have. There's no pain that can compare to, to what humans go through. You know, losing a child, you know, Rick Warren talks about the suicide of his son. He and his wife, Kay, uh, the 21-year-old 20, kid kills, or 27-year-old kid kills himself after a life-battling depression. 
And he's asked frequently what gets him through. And he says, it is Easter. It's all I have. It's the only answer. It's the only thing that can speak into my pain. It's the only thing that can speak into my doubt and confusion. And it's the only thing that can get me back to days of joy and victory is the hope that death does not have the last word. Jesus gets the last word. And my son, who knew Jesus, will rise. This means if Christ rose, suicide is not the final word. ALS is not the final word. The abandonment of a marriage is not the final word. Chronic pain, disability, injustice is not the final word for six-year-old Jordan, for 25-year-old Sean. In all the agony of this life and the suffering and the death is not the final word. Jesus speaks the final word. If he rose, then death is powerless to hold you back. You're going to live forever if Christ is in your life because he is coming. Life is on its way. And that's the point of Easter, that life wins. I can imagine what that will be like. C.S. Lewis described it in The Great Divorce, Chapter 9. He said, Some mortals say of temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even the agony into a glory. The resurrection of Jesus is pointing forward as a promise, a day when everything's going to be made right, when everything will be made new. Some of you are thinking, I don't know that I really believe this. And and I want to challenge you that you should wish this was true, even if you don't believe it is. Because you can spend your life working towards social justice. You could spend your life seeking to feed the hungry and take care of the poor. You can spend your life trying to make this a world a better place for the weakest among us. And yet if a billion years from now, the stars will have gone out and nobody will be left. And no one will even know that human beings had ever existed. Then you have to wonder, what is the point? if it all ends up a ruin anyway. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a point to all of that because we continue, because Christ rose, we can pour ourselves out for the needs of this world. N.T. Wright has written this. He says, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. He writes, If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in some spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding some new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus is truly risen from the dead, then Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it is not about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. The resurrection, the down payment for a greater resurrection to come. It leads us to Soren Kierkegaard's prayer. My Lord God, grant me once more the courage hope. Vincent van Gogh was a man greatly acquainted with sorrow. Rejected by church leaders, 
as they were so focused on their status and their wealth and their social standing. He was tormented by manic delusions and psychotic episodes. He was wounded in one relationship after another. He was depressed. He was despised. He was hated in the eyes of family and friends and society. He was a reject and failure. But as Vincent pulled away from the institutional church and as his theology became more mystical, influenced by both evangelical Protestantism and by Roman Catholicism, even when making his worst decisions or suffering his worst losses while nursing a hangover, while suffering an STD, while tied up in an asylum, even in the midst of his seizures and his deepest darkness, Vincent never let go of Jesus. He knew there was evil inside of him. He needed a redeemer, not a fix-it guide. He knew his only hope lay outside of himself. In a letter to his brother, Vincent explained, There is much evil in the world and in ourselves, terrible things. And one does not need to be far advanced in life to be in fear of much and to feel the need of a firm faith in life hereafter and to know that without faith in God, one cannot live, one cannot bear it, but, that, but with that faith in God, one can go on for a very long time. When Vincent's life took on hope, he gave that hope a color. That color was yellow. Yellow was that color so absent from the windows of, of the Dutch church in his day. And one notices a gradual increase. Can we get that next slide? One notices a gradual increase in his use of, of, of the color yellow. Uh, for him, it evoked the hope and warmth and love of of, of God. You see in starry night, you see at the bottom, you see the church. You can barely see it because it's so blue, it's so dark. There is no hope in it. There is no life in it. They're too concerned. They're too pretentious. They're too concerned with their status and their wealth and what people think of them. But he sees nevertheless in the sky signs of God's love and hope breaking through in the bright yellow of the moon, in the swirl of stars going about breaking through the darkness. God's love shining through in creation, even when he couldn't see it in his own church. By the time he painted the raising of Lazarus, his life was on the mend, and he began to face the truth about himself. Could we get that slide? Based on the text in the Gospels where Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus, and then in his great love raises his friend Lazarus from death back to life, the entire picture is blindingly bathed in yellow, In fact, as you look upon the face of Lazarus, you might recognize it. Could we get the close-up? Because it is Vincent's own face. He is the face of Lazarus. Though he is rejected by his church, he is surrounded by yellow. Though his life has been filled with sin and brokenness, he is receiving God's love. Though he knows himself to be mad, Though he knows himself to be a failure, though he knows himself to be despised by all, there is one that loves him. And that love is blazing and complete, and it shines forth upon the face of Vincent van Gogh. That blazing yellow is the love of Jesus, who will raise this broken sinner from the grave and bring him again to glory. Here, shining upon Vincent is the love of God and his own hope in the coming resurrection through Christ. He reflected on the state of evil and sorrow. He wrote this. Sorrow is better than joy. And even in mirth, the heart is sad. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasts. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. He continues, Our nature is sorrowful, but for those who have learned and are learning to look at Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this holy Easter Sunday, and we bless your name, for you are the one who broke the bonds of death. You are the one who rose from death to life. You are the one who sets captives free, and you are the one who calls to us now, saying, believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he will live forever. I will raise him up at the last day. We consecrate these elements to you now for this holy sacrament. Lord Jesus Christ, be among us now that we might know you and represent you. Be filled with the hope that comes from you. Amen.